innovation is by definition never finished. We see this work of continuing to push new startups in the space and continuing to fund innovators and new ideas, something that is kind of evergreen as a need. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Betsy Hoover, who returns to the show again after having been one of my first guests and a few times since. I like to talk to Betsy because by founding Higher Ground Labs, she has put an organization in the middle of the funding and development of an innovative tech ecosystem for Democrats and progressives. We spoke this time about the landscape map of that ecosystem that Higher Ground updates each year, about their new portfolio cohort, and about some upcoming events that they have coming up. If this is your area of interest, you'll have to listen. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Betsy Hoover of Higher Ground Labs. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Betsy, welcome back to the podcast. You're a recurring guest. Could you uh, remind folks who you are? Well, it's great to be here, Nathaniel. Great to great to talk to you, and thanks for having me. My name is Betsy Hoover, and I am one of the co-founders of Higher Ground Labs. Uh, we are a small fund that works mostly in the political technology space. So some of our founders have joined you on the show before, and I know I've really enjoyed the conversations. And so the majority of what we do is fund startups in the space and then work closely with the founders of those startups to enter the political tech market and make an impact on the types of leaders we elect and the types of campaigns that we run. But we also do a number of projects that help hopefully build the ecosystem and make a stronger, um, clearer, more mature market for our folks to work in and for our campaigns to use and benefit from. And one of those projects is the landscape report. So every year we put out a report that kind of summarizes what's happening in the political technology space. What are the big trends? Uh, what are the big gaps? Um, are there any significant new entrants or folks who have left the space? And ultimately kind of mapping the big players in the space. And our uh, goal with the report is to help buyers navigate the space and understand what technology is available as they're making decisions about how to build the uh, tech stack and infrastructure for their campaigns and organizations. And then also help innovators understand what's happening, what the activity is like in the spaces that they're interested in and where there might be a need for continued innovation. That landscape report is fairly dense. It includes a lot of different sort of categories of campaigning. And it makes it seem like campaigning is an awfully complicated thing with 
numerous kinds of technologies, it's pretty daunting. What do you think is the general state of uh, the technology market that's available to progressive and democratic candidates and associated organizations? Yeah, it is a complicated space. Campaigning is complicated. And um, there are a lot of pieces that people can use to build a tech stack that complements the work that they're doing. And so, you know, the first thing is, I think just acknowledging that, you know, the folks that are in this space and are doing this work, campaign managers and practitioners across the space, they're doing hard work in a complicated space with a lot of factors, right? Like campaigning is not a niche thing. It's a super generalist thing because you have to be a fundraising expert and an outreach expert and an organizer and a communications expert and a digital expert, not to mention, you know, obviously knowing how to manage a budget and um, spend down to zero at exactly the right time, which is a nearly impossible task. It's a super complicated space. And so we decided to just embrace that complexity in this report and really give all of the options that are available to folks. And so organizationally, how we did that is we built this map. And it's a map that um, I think has been a useful resource to the space. I see it used in other places, not just by us, which is great and makes me really, really happy. But the map breaks down the big categories of campaigns. And there are kind of eight categories that we group things into. And so when I say, you know, a campaign manager has to be an expert in a whole bunch of different areas, those eight categories kind of outline um, the areas that we think a campaign manager ends up being an expert or hires experts, depending on the size of the campaign. And then we try to group our findings and kind of our key learnings, as well as the technologies available into those groups. We do that so that if you are coming um, very few people are going to read this report beginning to end. It's a long report, and we know that, and it is dense. But we do that to try to say, okay, if you're coming to learn about the um, messaging space, or you're coming because you want to make a play in the volunteer management space, or you're coming because you need to better um, understand the analytics space, it gives you a way to drill in on that particular vertical of a campaign, understand what technologies are available there, and also kind of those key learnings and key areas for innovation that came out of the last cycle. If I were running for office, I guess I would want to have someone break this down. Like, okay, I'm running for Congress in Texas. Here's what I should use. I guess I'd probably want that to be made by one manufacturer or maybe integrated with one manufacturer if it, if it had to extend to other things. What do you think is the goal here? Like over time, what would you like to see happen as the companies in your various portfolios mature, as the space matures? What would you like to see as you know a steady state or an end goal? Or do you think that that's not a, a thing to aim at. Yeah, um, it's a great question. And, you know, people say all the time to us, uh, like, what's the perfect tech stack? What do I need? Just give me my checklist and I'll go uh, check it off and, and sign those contracts or, or work with those groups. And unfortunately, I just don't think that it's that easy. I don't think there is a one size fits all solution. Different campaigns have different needs based on where they're campaigning, who the candidate is and how their voice is most authentically represented, as well as like the size of the campaign and what resources are available. 
So I don't think there's a one size fits all solution. And I think that's part of why having some choice is important. You know, it is the responsibility of campaign staff or um, organizational leadership to evaluate the options available and build a tech stack um, that fits the needs of, of that particular campaign or that particular effort. We are very willing to help people do that and spend a lot of time on that. So if the Higher Ground Labs team can ever be helpful to anyone when they're choosing their tech stack, we're more than happy to do so. You can shoot me a note. Um, at Betsy at Higher Ground Labs or just info at Um, We do that often. But but I do think there's a process of choice that every organization and campaign has to go through. On the other hand, these platforms should integrate seamlessly and data should be able to flow between them. It's interesting in our 2020 landscape report, this was the number one finding that we heard from the over 100 interviews that we did of practitioners leading up to publishing the report data integration and data portability remains a major, major pain point for campaigns up and down the ballot. Everyone from organizers to data directors to digital directors, everyone in the space. And so this is one of the things that we see as as a major challenge that needs to be addressed in the next couple of years. And I would have said that four years ago too, but I think that we are actually at a point that we can address some of this based on kind of the state of our data in the space today, which is really exciting. We made an investment this year uh, in a company called Blue Link that does focus on data portability. Um, so really moving data between systems. And that's one way that a lot of organizations have started to solve that problem. But that's just one piece of it. So if I'm thinking about future state, I'm thinking of a place where your data flows seamlessly and it's relatively easy for a campaign or organization to choose the CRM interface, choose the voter outreach tools, choose the analytics tools that best fit the needs and the skills and the resources they have in front of them, but they can rely on their data being where they need it to be at all times. I remember small social movements to make data integration work in 2004 and six and eight and probably every two 10 years. and 12. And yes. yeah, <laughs> totally. And, and, you know, and some of those years I was running an enterprise that had opinions about how that would work. And some of those years subsequently, I've been out of having to wear one hat. It strikes me that there aren't, that the incentives uh, aren't all equal for every enterprise to want to integrate, uh, to want to share data easily. You know, if you're running an enterprise and you want to keep your customers, you want them don't necessarily want them to easily move to a competitor. There's different ways that people try to keep them, including being a great product or providing wonderful service or having contracts of duration or a lower price or, you know, all of the, the different things. And one of those is, you know, maybe making their system more closed. So how much has that changed since I, I was in the field? Does that, do you think that the balances are changing in that area? Yes, some for sure. Um, I think the way that vendors treat their, the data that their clients develop on their platform is one thing. I think the second thing is like how organizations and campaigns want to protect their data. And we cannot underscore the fact that like data privacy really matters in all spaces and particularly matters when we're talking about politics and personal identity. And it's something people take like incredibly seriously and should. So um, this this has been complicated for a long time and rightfully so in my mind, because it 
it is complicated and it's important. It's a serious thing. I think a couple of moves have um, been made in the past four years, which is what leads me to say, I think we're at a better or a different point than we've been at before. One is the DNC has done incredible work on this. And the way that Phoenix is being used as a data warehouse, at least for the hard side, that just hasn't happened with the level of um, expertise and precision that I think it's is happening right now with this with this team. And I think that makes a huge difference in the space, just in terms of knowing we have secure data that's accessible and can be used in a bunch of different ways. Um, so just huge kudos to um, Nell and the team at the DNC for prioritizing that. I also think DDX as an exchange was just a huge entrant. Um, and we highlight that in the report. And I'm not sure that DDX reached its full and maximum potential in 2020, but I think it did provide a lot of value and it paved the way for what's possible moving forward. Um, and so again, just to Lindsay and the team at DDX and, and really the monumental effort that came from lots of different fronts to get that stood up, that, that was just a major shift that I think just changes the conversation around who owns data, where it lives. And when we talk about how to move data around, like who has a stake in that conversation in what I would say is a really, really positive direction. When you talk to new entrepreneurs or people in your portfolio about this question about integrating with the different pieces that are out there in order to serve their clients better, in order to serve the space better, what's your advice? Be pro-integration from day one. <laughs> I think particularly startups in this space, this is true mostly for any volunteer management, voter outreach, or fundraising tool. To a lesser extent on the messaging and polling side, they have different integration challenges, but I'm talking specifically about that like strong user-facing, those apps that that kind of all overlap in some, in some method or another. Um, just to be pro-integration all the time. And so particularly new entrants in the space, if your data is closed off, it's going to be very difficult for a, a client to use you because it's very hard for a campaign or an organization to do what they need to do if they can't get that 360 degree view of the volunteer or the donor or the voter that they're reaching. And that requires that all of their apps talk to each other. So, you know, obviously NGP Van and Every Action has been the major player in that space. And so lots of the integration challenges have gone through that platform. But it's also starting to be how folks within our portfolio integrate with one another and how data flows between apps, just even within the same cohort and you know how to build with a similar set of standards and a similar set of pipes in mind to move that data relatively relatively seamlessly. So we we at HGL are super pro integration. We um, try to make that part of our programming with our founders from day one. And we do our best to help them navigate what can be a very complicated space throughout our accelerator program and then really throughout our work with them. One of the things about any mapping like this landscape report that you do is it shapes the way you think about an area, right? It reflects how you, you think about it, but it also shapes it. How does it shape how you invest, how you target investments, how you think about what's missing and what's not? Yeah, that's a really um, good question. And it's actually one of the, the ways I use the report the most is to help think about where we're kind of placing our bets. And I do, I think about those eight categories 
And if you go through the report, we basically have key learnings or key takeaways from each section, and then also key areas for innovation in each section. Um, And so each year as we go through and do like our investment thesis at HDL, identifying where we want to make investments, we do really try to balance across those eight categories. So we're not doing all of our investments behind voter outreach or um, volunteer management or fundraising, um, but that we're balancing between that kind of one-to-many communication and analytics and media and messaging and research. And that's both so that we don't flood the space with too many new options in one particular area, but also so that we are uh, watching all areas of a campaign improve um, and kind of lifting, <laughs> lifting all the corners of the boat, hopefully, with the investments in our portfolio. And it's a better, it's a better balance for, um, for our investors as well to make sure that we're uh, spread out among the different areas of campaigns. You said that one of the things you're tracking is trends. What trends do you see since like the last time you did a landscape report? Yeah. So one of the big ones that came up in 2020 is influencer marketing. This is, you know, something that we've seen hinted at in reports in the past, but in 2020, it was very clear that a higher number of campaigns, even further down ballot, were putting more resources and more time into influencer marketing programs. And one of the key takeaways here was that the political space, we, we were pretty under-resourced in terms of what was available to run influencer marketing programs. A lot of the tools that were used, including Greenfly, who's now in our portfolio, is used by the Biden team. Um, but they were pulling from outside of politics companies that were working in other industries, which is great. And sometimes that's the best way to scale a new program. But we have now invested in a couple of different companies in our newest cohort that have a different take on that and are working specifically within the political market on influencer marketing, because it's something that seemed to be a focus for so many people last cycle. um, And we hope to see that trend continue. So that's an example of, of something that really popped last year. Disinformation and misinformation and what to do about that continues to be just like a drumbeat that we hear over and over from folks. And so we're following that. What are people finding work there? What what isn't working? You know, we are continuing to follow the relational organizing trend, um, which is something that's been going for a while now and something we feel passionately about. But how is that working for folks? Where is adoption the best? Where does it still need work? That's another thing that, that we've been looking at. So those are some examples of the types of trends and how we use them. The way you answer that question, I'm not sure the question of gaps is a separate one, but I think it might be. What are the gaps in this space? What's still missing after all the efforts of the last thousand years? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I just named two. I think influencer marketing and misinformation continue to be gaps. Um, Another thing that comes up every year, and, and I'm still not sure we have a solution to is really how to service super down ballot campaigns. They need a different tech stack. Down ballot campaigns probably need just one tool or two tools. Um, and we have a couple that, you know, DEC was used very widely by down ballot campaigns last cycle. And there were some really positive reports coming out of that. But there's still a need for, you know, like a basic operating system for down ballot campaigns. And, and that's a really hard market to crack. It's a really hard space to play in. But it's increasingly important, I think, for Democrats. So uh, that's a gap that that we aim to try to fill. And we invested in a company this time around called Universe um, that's seeking to do exactly that. And the founder there 
Adam Miller is trying to solve this this very challenge. And that's exactly why we made this investment. So um, on that front, I talked to Adam. People should listen to that podcast episode. It was interesting to hear his take on the market, which he would say something like, it is ludicrous that a, a, a down ballot campaign would look at a landscape report like this. It's not a fit for their world. They need very basic integrated set of tools for doing the, the basic things. They don't need highly refined voter data. They just need voter data. Many of the things that would matter at a you know, contested statewide or federal race uh, are just totally irrelevant to a school board race where they're just trying to, to reach out in different ways, right? What that made me think and, and kind of reflected thoughts of mine years ago is like, if you were successful building something for really small campaigns that was tightly integrated with itself and solved their problems, then it's probably a good way to walk up into more and more complicated campaigns over time. Do you think about that when you're maybe creating competitors for your other portfolio? I mean, obviously he's, it's a simple, it's a, at this moment, it's a very modest, simple thing as it ought to be compared to, to a very specialized tool or a tool that's been around uh, for decades. Yeah. Yeah. So my, my take on, on the down ballot thing is I actually think that they are, um, their needs are pretty distinct and probably will remain. So the biggest challenge that Adam faces is that down ballot campaigns need everything in one place and their contracts are small and they need some hand. Yeah. Small budgets and And they they need need, support (laughs) and they need support. Yeah. And so that is a really, and they're everywhere. Like they're geographically diverse. And so that's a really hard market to crack and it's a really hard business model to make work. Um, but it's really, really, really important. You know, Adam is an incredible designer and engineer who has an incredible team who I think has a really slick interface that makes it easy. So they need less support, but they're still going to need some support. (laughs) And the trick is the go-to-market strategy, right? So down ballot is really complicated. I don't think a presidential campaign should have everything in one spot. Like nothing's going to be able to be that. There, I, I don't think any one platform can be all things that a presidential campaign needs. And so I would say there's going to be a down ballot tool set and there's going to be a, let's call it like tier one congressional and above tool set. And, and it's okay that those are distinct. That's probably appropriate. But I think it's hard to play to both of those markets at one time because the sales cycle is so different and the types of need is so different. Yeah. And everything's different. The marketing, the sales, the support, the The stakeholder within the organization, Yeah, you know, what would you say of these eight categories is the least well-served right now? And what do you think is the best? Even though there are a lot of logos in our messaging and media section, I still think there's a lot of room there, a lot of work to do. And ultimately, I think that we could divide that into like eight different categories. There's so much that falls within that category. We can and should be better at listening in smart ways and developing targeted messages that we get out in affordable, authentic ways. I would say that's the most like interesting area in terms of innovation needs in my mind. 
Um, and then I would say the one that's best served, I mean, there's been such a focus over the past couple of cycles on voter outreach and how we do that. And it's been so measured and um, heavily reported on. And so my instinct is that that is the best served. But the reality is we, we did a buyer survey that's referenced several times throughout the report as part of our research. And um, the number one category that came up from our buyer survey as needing the most innovation was mobilization and voter outreach, which is so fascinating because we have, I feel like we have so many options there, but clearly there's still some level of underserved. Um, well, there's, it's amazing what people don't know that's out there. I mean, like the, the information just doesn't get around. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. So, so who knows why, but I found that really interesting because that would not have been my response, but that was the response we got from our buyer survey. One thing that's been on my mind quite a bit lately is about sort of the notion of reforming how we campaign, like, and that's an ongoing process, but there seem to be so many practices that are still being implemented that are out of date or out of accord with the learning that's taken place, whether that's how much is spent on mass media, whether that's how we send emails and whether they're ethical. You take almost any element of campaigning and I think it's possible to critique it quite significantly and people are, but but we're changing very slowly. What do you think are the areas that ought be reformed and how do you think we might best make those kind of changes? The number one answer to this in my mind is the percentage of our budgets that we're spending on tech enabled um, media and, and spend generally. And, you know, the report shows actually the trend line is in the right direction here. In 2020, we actually made the biggest jump we've made yet in terms of um, the percentage of our media budgets that was going online as opposed to going into traditional media, which is great, but we still lag like way behind other industries. And the reality is we're competing with those other industries for the attention of our voters who are also their consumers, right? So we are underrepresented online in terms of where we're reaching these people. And um, to the extent that our goal is to reach people where they are, like people are online. So we need to like get over that and start, you know, shifting our budget to where our people are. That to me is the number, the number one thing that still like kind of boggles my mind um, in terms of how slow we are to, to adopt. There were some really interesting trends around that piece in particular um, this past cycle, I think because of the pandemic. And we bring this up in the um, report as well. You know, when our campaigning shifted entirely online, we saw these massive jumps in terms of how programs were run and how digital tools and digital media and digital messaging was being used out of necessity. Like it was the only form of communication we had and only touch point we had with people. We couldn't do door-to-door canvassing for a lot of the cycle. We certainly couldn't do rallies um, or like large fundraisers for most of the cycle. And so people found ways to do that online. And I think one of the big questions as they look towards 2022 is what are the trends that started in 2020 that will continue, in my mind, for the better, making campaigning better most of the time? Um, And what are the things that will go back and was really just a blip on the radar? And I think those are some of the choices that campaign managers are making now or going to be making very early next year um, about how campaigns are run in 2022. That'll be really interesting to watch. I don't talk to too many candidates, but I talked to a congressional candidate the other day 
um, who had run twice in a row and the first time kind of on his own, the second time as a targeted race with a DCCC involved. And he basically said, well, they made him sign a contract that uh, 75% of his budget was going to media and they made him sit on the phone for 40 hours a week raising money. And that was campaigning. He wanted to do more what he had done the first time. It was discouraging to me you know, may have cost us that race, may not have, you know, it's so hard to tell, but that is, that is 1980s uh, campaigning. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, you know, we work with, with the DTRIP and the DNC and and the national committees all the time. So, you know, I know that change is happening in all of those places at, um, at different levels, but yeah, I, I, you know, that culture change work has to happen from the top down. Like we have to change the way that all of us are expecting um, our candidates to campaign. And and a lot of times the candidates have the most innovative ideas in terms of how to. Or sometimes they're wrong, but somehow there has to be a, like a meeting uh, and, you know, all the studies going on too, to come to like, there's so much at stake right now. I mean, we can't afford to lose a race that we could win when the house is five seats apart. Well, and especially when we look at re- the Republican side and we know, you know, if we could do one thing in this landscape report that we're not doing, it would be to do a landscape report of the other side as well. Yeah. Why not? I would like to see that. Yeah. If anyone wants to fund a Republican landscape report, we're here for it. How much? Hey, uh, good question. <laughs> Call me. Um, anyway, we uh, we do mention it a little bit throughout in terms of some of the the insight that we have, but they are doing way more online. And while they don't have quite the digital infrastructure that we have, I think we have a leg up and we've done a great job making up some ground on that over the past four years. They do have the money and the the focus at the campaign strategy level on digital communication for sure and targeting online and making sure that it's a core party or program that we just still lack despite the training and the resourcing and the number of tools and, you know, a, a lot of the, the assets that we have in our corner. I wonder beyond Analyst Institute, is there a place for a think tank about, maybe it exists, a think tank about campaigning, a organization that holds best practices, including around technology? I think that would be so interesting. We've toyed with like, what if we had a higher ground institute? We've definitely thought about it. And I know other other partners in the space have as well. I think it would be a really, really interesting thing. There are a lot of trainers, but I'm not sure I've seen anything quite like that. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And the Analyst Institute does an amazing job with pieces of that. Wellstone some, does some of it, I think, and Arena holds some of it um, now as they've continued to grow their program. But it does feel like there is a little bit of, gap, of a gap of like a, yeah, think tank or a central repository of these best, this best practice information. But yeah, the landscape report is us trying to provide the piece of that that um, that we can in our current structure. Betsy, you um, announced a, another cohort recently, and we have some kind of buyer showcase coming up soon. Tell me what's coming up for Higher Ground and what else we should know about. Yeah, we just a couple months ago announced cohort four, our fourth accelerator cohort. It's an amazing group of companies. I've mentioned some of them in this conversation so far, but um, definitely check them out if you haven't yet. It's an awesome, awesome crew. Our accelerator is different this year than it's been in the past, thanks COVID. Um, We are doing 
kind of a half in-person, half virtual program. But that means our buyer showcase, which we have traditionally done in D.C. as part of our accelerator, we're doing virtually instead. And that is coming up on September 23rd, I believe. Yeah, September 23rd um, at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. And we're really excited about it. So the invite for that just went out last week. And anyone who is interested in learning more about the tools in our portfolio should absolutely sign up. It is open invitation and a great chance to connect with the founders of some of the newest startups out there. Do investors go to that or do they have other opportunities to see your... We will also do an investor demo day later this fall in November. And so more information on that coming, but investors are definitely welcome to join us. It's just the um, pitches will be geared at buyers and we'll follow up with an investor demo day um, in November. How are you guys doing yourself in fundraising and I don't know, uh, energy and, and excitement about continuing to do what you've been doing for a while now? We're, uh, we're good. And we see what we're doing as continuing to be really important for the space. You know, the midterms are, I mean, I'm, I'm not breaking any news here that we have a really steep climb, a really big fight ahead of us next year. Innovation is by definition, never finished. We see this work of continuing to push new startups in the space and continuing to fund innovators and new ideas something that is kind of evergreen as a need. So we did just raise our third fund, which will power us through next year. Really grateful to the new folks who came on board for that. We've expanded the HDL family quite a bit. So we're very excited about this cohort and the other investments that we're able to make between now and next November. As a result, we anticipate doing some additional seed investments like the ones um, that we just rolled out uh, next year as well, as uh, well as some follow-on into our existing portfolio where folks are um, scaling for the midterms and beyond. So uh, yeah, still still at it with an amazing team of folks. Um, and yeah, just really grateful for the, the role we get to play in doing something cool. Is there a question I should have asked that I didn't? Who made this awesome report and who should get credit for it? Becky, <laughs> who, who made this awesome report and who should get credit for it? Our um, team member, Teddy Gold, who actually should have been the one doing this episode because he is really the deepest expert on this report, um, but he moved on from HGL and is starting this new incredible uh, startup with a studio in New York. If you want more information, get in touch. Um, but Teddy led an incredible team of interns um, on the creation of this report and really just did outstanding work, as did everyone on the team. And as part of putting this report together, we also did interview 100 people from across the space at least, plus did a buyer survey that got responses from tons of folks. So this is really an industry-wide report. Um, So we're just so grateful to everyone who contributed to it. Thanks for all of your thoughts. And just huge shout out to Teddy and the intern team that put this together. Well, thanks uh, for taking the time today, Betsy. That was Betsy Hoover. Betsy is at HigherGroundLabs.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at GreatBattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.